Welcome to Unboxy World, the podcast where philosophy meets tech. In each episode, we're connecting the dots between philosophy, technology, society, science, and progressive thought. And together with brilliant minds across the world who dare to challenge the way we think and live in today's society, we are unboxing our minds one episode at a time. I am Ria Salting. I am a tech professional during the day and a philosopher at night. And if you enjoy this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to the newsletter to never miss the latest unboxed episode. So let's get started. Let's unbox ourselves. Welcome back to the show. Could ancient wisdom, especially found in Buddhism, be explained by modern psychology? Today we have Dr. Debbie Joffe Ellis on the show, and she is a world-renowned expert on rational emotive behavior therapy, REBT, which is actually in fact the precursor of the well-known cognitive behavior therapy, also known as CBT. Rational emotive behavior therapy focuses holistically on the human being, even more so than the classical CBT, which reminds us that the mind, behavior, emotions, physical health, and well-being are all very much intertwined. The RBT approach also has many similarities with elements we find in the teachings of ancient philosophies, including Buddhism and Stoic philosophy. Now, thousands of years later, parts of these ancient wisdoms can now be explained by scientific modern psychology. So today, we will dig into the basic elements of REBT and how it in parts differs from the classical CBT approach. What unconditional acceptance means, according to RBT, and its benefits explained by psychology. We will also dig into the concept of detachment and the benefit of compassion, again explained by psychology. And lastly, how the RBT approach is not only a highly effective scientific approach, but also a way of life. So let's get to it and welcome back to the show. So hello, Dr. Debbie Joffe Ellis. Welcome to Unboxy World. Uh, Maria, it's a great pleasure to be with you. I've heard you interview a colleague of mine, and and I I love your questions that beget such insightful responses. You're a great interviewer, and it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Oh, that's nice of you. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> it's great to have you here today. It's um. I've been looking for someone who could uh, cover this topic. Uh, so I, let's just start off by digging into uh, what uh, what you do. Um, so you do something called REBT. Uh, what makes that unique within the psychology field? And what does it stand for? 
Okay. I'll, I, I could I could give you a whole lecture on mm -hmm. that, but I'll I'll save you and your listeners the torture, and I'll I'll make it brief. So REBT stands for Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy. A lot of people who know a bit about psychology or psychotherapy have heard about CBT, Cognitive Behavior Therapy. Mm. However it seems a number of them don't realize that REBT is the original cognitive approach in psych psychotherapy that Dr. Aaron Beck, who's known as the father of CBT, actually was mentored by the creator of REBT, who happened to be my husband, my late mm -hmm. husband, the great, amazing Dr. Albert Ellis. And so a, a very quick, brief history. Um, in the early 20th century, the work of Sigmund Freud and psychoanalysis ruled the psychotherapeutic groups. And Albert Ellis, Al, I'll call him Al because he was my husband and I didn't call him Dr. Albert Ellis. Um, he wanted to help people. He wanted to be a psychologist. He the only uh, thing that was offered in universities, and by the way, he I love uh, reflecting on the fact that he got his master's and PhD in psychology from Columbia University, the very same building where I'm blessed to teach these mm -hmm. days. I'm a professor there. Uh, so anyway, so he studied psychoanalysis there because he had no choice. That was the only approach they taught there, and he became a psychologist analysis and he was very good at it but he didn't like it he felt that it wasn't efficient even though some aspects he embraced like you know understanding elements of the unconscious and subconscious but he felt other elements were not practical or even necessary for people who had a goal to suffer less emotional suffering um as soon as possible. Now, when I say that, for some people, depending on where they're at, it can take time. Other people, with effort, it can take less time. So bit by bit, as Al practiced his psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, he became more active directive. You know, psychoanalysis is very passive, free association, and the client, which they call the patient, just sort of talks, and some insight can be gained. I don't want to sound like I'm totally ditzing it. But um, my husband observed that people were not taking responsibility for their own emotions, that it was their past, it was their childhood, it was this or that. And Al believed that each one of us is responsible for creating our own emotional destiny. And bit by bit, he was working on becoming more active directive, more psychoeducational, teaching his clients the principles that if they applied them, they could create healthy emotions. And healthy doesn't always mean happy. And that's one of the beautiful things about REBT. You know, many approaches have positive emotions in one basket when they describe them and negative emotions. But Albert Ellis 
was the first one within the negative basket to distinguish between the healthy versus unhealthy negative emotions. And so he became more precise, psychoeducational, imbued with compassion. You know, REBT is, is one of the original humanistic approaches in psychotherapy. And so in, in the early 1950s, Al came out with that. Uh, some years later, Dr. Aaron Beck approached him with the correspondence about his work on depression. And, and in the late 1960s, CBT, originally it was called cognitive therapy, came out. So I've left out a lot of the history of my husband and how and why he came to be a psychologist. That might be for another interview <laughs> another time. However, in conclusion, rational emotive behavior therapy is the original cognitive approach. It is no nonsense realistic, optimistic, imbued with compassion. It's also a way of life. It's a philosophy, but it's also evidence-based, scientific, and has many, many tools and techniques with which just philosophy don't, philosophies don't usually provide. Mm. I hope I answered your question there. <laughs> Yeah, you did. <laughs> you were saying something about the difference between positive and negative negative emotions. Um, yes. Could you explain that? <laughs> I would love yeah. to explain that. So many of us uh, know what the positive emotions are. They're very pleasant. They're uplifting, such as um, joy, happiness, tranquility. They're considered the positive emotions. Now, Albert Ellis distinguished, as I said, between the healthy negative emotions. Negative in this context doesn't mean bad. It implies they're not so pleasant. But the healthy ones are enriching. They're part of the tapestry of human life. And, and you know, one of the gifts of being a, a human who isn't impaired in any way is that we can feel emotions. Mm. Some people... It's a pathology. They actually can't feel or distinguish between emotions. It's it's a type of, of um, pathology in some cases. And so the healthy ones enrich us and motivate us. The unhealthy ones debilitate us. So the unhealthy ones are anxiety, Panic, extreme fear, despondency, mm. hopelessness, depression, rage, guilt, and shame. Their healthy counterparts are concern. You know, REBT mm. is not about mm. achieving some neutral emotional zone, you know, peace and love, everything is fine. Not at all. It wants us to experience emotions intensely, but healthy ones. So concern can be motivating you know, can, can push us to take some action or at least to think about if we can, in fact, take any action in a particular circumstance. Mm -hmm. If not, if, if something is way out of our hands, then the next step would be acceptance of what we can't change. Mm -hmm. But coming back to what I was talking about, concern instead of anxiety, healthy grief and sadness. I was just going to say that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
and and despondency um sorry not despond grief uh, sadness and disappointment instead of despondency depression mm. and hopelessness you know grief when when someone we love dies or or a period in our life that we cherished is over for one reason or another mm. In the beginning stages, it hurts. It's painful, mm -hmm. but pain doesn't usually kill one. And as time moves on, it's transformed. And, and the grief, it's like it's married to our love and gratitude for that which we no longer have. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's enriching. Yeah. Yeah? Whereas the depression, we don't want to get out of bed in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. And then rage, we react. We don't think. Mm. We're, you know, our primal brain rules the roost when we're acting out in rageful ways. Whereas our, um, the healthy counterpart is what REBT calls healthy anger. What is that? It's that experience that we create that is attached to our moral compass. One of the premises of REBT is that if a person is not disturbed, the inclination is to act in moral, ethical ways, to not do any purposeful harm, mm. similar to Buddhism, but I think we'll get mm. there. And so healthy anger would be if I'm either witnessing or receiving abuse. And it's that experience of, no, you know, this is not right. But one doesn't react. One breathes. One takes time to think things through. What might be the better thing to do? Say something, run for the hills, call the police, meditate, and then make a decision, talk to the person. So we think things through rather than blind reaction, which is rage. Mm. And finally, the, the healthy counterpart to guilt and shame which guilt and shame are often present when people attempt suicide, you know, and and, and um, very much attached to, to hopelessness as well. Anyway, the healthy counterpart is regret, also connected to our moral compass. REBT reminds us, and this is one of the very important aspects of REBT, that every human is fallible. And that we can make mistakes, mm. we can fail at things. But just because we fail at things doesn't mean we are a failure. Just because we do something bad doesn't mean we're always or only bad. And so regret allows us to take responsibility for, yeah, I did a bad thing. But that doesn't mean I'm fully bad. I did a bad thing, so if I can do a bad thing, it means I have the power to, to undo it in some cases and certainly to prevent doing it in the future. So regret is very healthy. Another very core premise, Maria and listeners mm -hmm. of REB, is that every human has worth simply because we exist. Doing good deeds doesn't give us more worth. Doing bad deeds doesn't give us less worth. It's preferable to strive to do more good, but we're fallible. Mm. We're likely to make mistakes. 
still one has worth by virtue of being alive. And, and that's a very important premise and encouragement in REBT. Mm. And one final thing, how does one experience the healthy versus unhealthy emotions? That's what REBT teaches us. When we think in rational ways, we create the healthy emotions. When we think in irrational ways, we create the unhealthy ones. So the healthy way to go is, I wish life had more justice and was more fair. What can I do to, to contribute to creating more of that? REBT is very realistic. Mm. So that's the rational thing. <laughs> wants and wishes, not demands. We don't catastrophize. We don't awfulize. We don't think in absolutistic ways or, or overgeneralize or stereotype. We have high frustration tolerance. We remind ourselves, I can stand what I don't like. I just don't like it. We have a sense of humour. We don't take ourselves or others or life too seriously. Mm. And one of the most important elements emphasised in REBT is unconditional acceptance of oneself, unconditional acceptance of others, and unconditional acceptance of life. That doesn't mean, oh, we accept it's okay when things are bad. Oh, we accept another person is, you know, that what they do, their action is okay. No, unconditional other acceptance, if someone does an evil deed, we don't accept that the evil deed is okay and we do what we can, if we can, to seek just consequences, but we refuse, and it's an effort. It, it can be an effort. We refuse to damn the whole person. We can damn the ba bad behaviour and act to change it if we can. But we remember that person is fallible, so am I. They did an evil thing. Hopefully I won't ever do what they did. You know, a little gratitude can come in. So unconditional other acceptance, we accept the human worth of that person and their fallibility. That doesn't mean we're mild about evil behaviour. And uh, unconditional self-acceptance, that even when I screw up, I'm not a screw-up. I did badly this time, but I have worth. Yeah. So I hope that, that I was clear in, in defining the differences. Yeah, so what struck me when I listened to some of your talks is that um, I felt a lot of similarities with, uh, with the Buddhism, almost like... Um, some things almost felt a little bit like this scientific translator to some of the teachings. Uh, would you agree uh, on that uh, and why in, in that case? <laughs> I, I would agree that there are many similarities and I also um, think that there are some key differences. Of course, Buddhism is a huge area and there are different mm. schools of, of Buddhism. There's Zen and Tibetan and, and many others. But um, my husband 
Albert Ellis, who created REBT, there are a number of influences. You know, he was a voracious reader. He loved um, philosophy and and, uh, he enjoyed the the philosophy of the Stoics. You know, Mm -hmm. one of the principles of REBT that's first, as far as we know, written in Stoic philosophy, it's not an event but our perception of it that creates our emotion. That was Epictetus, Albert Ellis. It's not what happens that creates our emotion, healthy or unhealthy, but how we think about it, rational or irrational, that creates the emotion. And Al also loved Eastern philosophies mm-hmm. and he read works of, you know, uh, various, Eastern, you know, Confucianism and Buddhism and he read Lao Tzu and, and various writers. And so... Um, some of the similarities between some of the schools of Buddhism and REBT, they both encourage humans to use their mind in healthy ways. And they both encourage, so I'm talking again broadly, Buddhism and REBT, compassion, not only for ourselves, but for others, and also for other creatures, and also for the environment and the planet. Um, Both REBT and certain schools of Buddhism see themselves as not only psychological or philosophical approaches, but also ways of life and living for people who will adopt them as such. Both of them encourage humour and not taking ourselves or others or life too seriously. The Dalai Lama and and Albert Ellis had a lot in common. (laughs) Both were very humorous. Both loved to laugh. Or the Dalai Lama, thankfully, is still alive. So my husband, I have to use past tense, Dalai Lama, present tense, much humour. Both active directive action-oriented. It's very nice to think good thoughts, but more importantly is to do good actions, to do good deeds, not just sit on your meditation pillow and om. Oh, you know. um, both of them do not consider or label people good or bad. They have that semantic awareness of, of our deeds don't define our worth, whether they're good or bad. In Buddhism, there's a a disciple and master often. And in REBT, there's the client and the therapist. And the master strives to encourage a disciple to develop such that he is at a level of masterhood. And in REBT, the therapist strives to help the client learn how to be his or her own therapist, to know the tools and the techniques and the principles. Both um, schools of Buddhism and REBT encourage unconditional acceptance. And both uh, encourage people to watch out for attachment and encourage, in a sense, non-attachment, meaning, um, let's say in Buddhism, not needing wealth, you know, detachment from material goods. It doesn't mean one doesn't enjoy them, but not to be attached. And and similarly in REBT, watch out for, 
I must have this and that and this much money or this property or it proves I'm an, a, a no good, unworthy human being. Mm. So both in their distinctive ways caution us against being attached to any um, <clears throat> non non-permanent things which mm. what's permanent right that's yeah. the whole other question and a few main oh sorry yeah because that is uh, i mean I, I, they talk a lot about detachment in buddhism right um right. and i think um i mean it it makes um sense to a lot of people like try not to react you know when Things happen, such as your phone is stolen on your, like these things. Like, um, but also, I think they also mean that you shouldn't be attached to positive emotions. Also, um, so just kind of like both let everything just flow naturally. What is the benefit of of that? So you like you should never you should not be, yeah, not being attached to positive feelings either. Well. Um, you know, I, I mm. am no expert in Buddhism. I'm pretty good on Neither REBT. Neither am I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what, what REBT, there, there would be a cautionary response, I think, um, about taking that too literally. Mm. You know, there can be some very earnest practitioners of Buddhism or REBT or anything else. And they can be very literal. And the danger in not being attached to positive emotions, well, attachment, I agree, REBT agrees, it's not healthy. It means I must feel good or, or it's bad, you know, or I'm not good enough or my life is terrible. And, and that certainly is unhealthy. But one would hope that the practicing Buddhist who thinks I must not be attached to, to positive feelings also doesn't deny them. And, and there's a danger there if, if certain people believe in just letting things flow. They're, they're not taking an active part in the creation of their emotional destiny. And, and that might be a pity. You know, there might be rare, evolved spiritual souls, but most of us are living a life that we need to earn money to pay the rent, and it might be unrealistic to just go with the flow and not realise that when bad things happen or things happen that we don't want, or we have a nasty speaking relative or a tyrannical boss, that if we go with the flow and not use the mind, the automatic response might be rage or, or despondency. And I love the proactivity of REBT that would say maybe instead of go with the flow, be mindful. I think what that's what I, me I meant a little more. <laughs> Okay, yeah. so REBT encourages mm -hmm. mindfulness and to watch out what are we feeling. And if it's a, a healthy emotion, positive or negative, go with it. Sad isn't bad. Mm -hmm. Grief is healthy. You know? But if it's hopelessness or anxiety, then REBT would say, come on, what are you telling yourself? It's not the circumstance, it's your thinking that's creating that. 
I think the then, yeah, I think the idea maybe is um, like yeah, what you're saying being the, the mindfulness. Um, but if something really good happens, um, like a very good surprise, let's say, you know, uh, your you, you, your company was acquired for you just sold off your company, you can and then you know, um, but then something bad happens, so then you're disappointed or they they decided to not do it anymore or it could be anything so just by you know you can be happy but not being attached to it right or yeah but it, it's very hard to explain <laughs> no 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 yeah. you you mm. can and and yeah rebt would would say enjoy fully mm. the good moment mm. be aware it probably won't last forever mm. and if something very um unwanted happens Yeah, feel sad and disappointed mm. and let that encourage you to think about, so what will I do now? Mm. In life, things happen. You know, what's so good about a tsunami or a hurricane mm. or a wildfire? Mm. Things happen in this material world. But what if we're not impaired, we can create our thinking and our attitude and our emotion and minimize hopelessness. You know, there, there are, in addition to my late husband's books and books that he and I co-wrote, there's also Dr. Viktor Frankl and his book, The Search for Meaning, and he survived concentration camp and made a cons conscious choice to find meaning every day, even in those circumstances. Yeah. And I'm very blessed that my magnificent, incredible, golden-hearted late parents also survived five years of horrific experiences in concentration camps. And they were able to survive, obviously, or I wouldn't be here. Um, my mother, so this was in Poland and, and Europe and, um, you know, Poland and other parts, you know, they were actually moved to various concentration camps, some outside of Poland, even though they were originally Polish. And my mother had an uncle in Australia and that's how they made it to Australia once they survived. That's a whole other story, mm -hmm. no time here, to start a new life. But But my point is... Growing up, I I was in a home where my parents were so grateful. They didn't harbor bitterness. They didn't study REBT, but they lived the principles of focusing on what was good, gratitude every day, loving life. Sure, they shed tears when they remembered their loved ones who who were slaughtered in in during the the Holocaust, but. They focused on what still was good in the here and now. Viktor Frankl wrote about that. And, and so there are many other examples. The Dalai Lama, <laughs> forced into exile, doesn't hate the Chinese, but he, he hated the actions of the government. So no specific person or country, but a government policy that led to exile and 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 some brutal behavior against um, the Tibetan people. 
Similarly, my late husband, Albert Ellis, at the end of his life, for not very good motives, but people had their own agendas, he was uh, not stopped from working in his own institute. He was kicked off, off the board of directors. Um, and there was a lot of publicity about that at the time because he was an icon in New York and in the world and in the field of psychology. And he was quoted as saying, I hate what they're doing. I don't hate them. And the Dalai Lama in similar words has said, I don't hate the Chinese people. I hate some of the things they've done. And so that's one of the similarities of unconditional acceptance of people. It doesn't mean you unconditionally accept bad deeds and actions. Mm. Yeah, I feel that acceptance is a word, word that's very widely misunderstood in our society today. Like It's like... And I feel like maybe even uh, it gets a bad reputation because of that. Um, um, because you should obviously not accept bad things. You should just accept that they have happened to you and, do, and you know, do the best you can when of, this, of the present situation, right? Have I? Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes indeed. I, where does it get us? Mm not to accept something that exists. That doesn't mean you're endorsing it. Yeah. That doesn't mean you're saying it's good. And it doesn't mean you don't work your ass off to change it if you can. Mm. But some things we're not able to change. You know, what about people and a parent has abused them, sexually abused them through their childhood, and the parent dies? The individual who is abused can't really face a dead parent, but they can choose to notice that any hatred or bitterness is only hurting them, not the dead parent, and to think in healthy way, which doesn't mean, oh, it was all right, it was not all right, but to consider in life sometimes for some of us some very bad things happen. But I have survived. I'm still here. I choose to focus on what was good. I choose to work on having compassion for that person because if he or she were not seriously disturbed, they wouldn't have done what they did. Yeah. And it's not compassion for the action but for the human who must have been damaged to act in such ways. So we change what we can and accept what we can't change. You're taking agency of your own feelings, making the exactly. best of it you can. Yeah. yeah. Well said. <laughs> so I think that is the, actually, leads to the other question is like, was often what they're talking about in Buddhism is that you have feelings, but you are not your feelings. Um, could you explain that? Is that, and is that similar? It, it is. Um, I guess when certain schools of Buddhism say you are not your feelings, they're implying um, that your feelings don't define you or your worth, mm. which uh, REBT agrees with, but I think it goes further and says, guess what, you can create your emotional destiny according to the way that you think, mm. which I already described earlier 
choosing to think in rational ways is is the way to create healthy life enriching emotions both the healthy negative and the positive ones you know and positive emotions aren't always healthy by the way you know so it it can be pathological to be happy when someone else suffers mm. right mm. so yeah but um REBT really does encourage us to create healthy emotions and to minimize suffering mm. and maximize joy. And we're not ashamed of saying that mm. in this one life we live. You know, if that sort of leads me to, to one of the differences between schools of Buddhism and REBT is in, REB, in, in certain schools of Buddhism, there's uh, encouragement, attain perfection, strive to achieve nirvana mm. or santori. And, and REBT asserts that it would be highly unusual for most of the humans on this earth to maintain a sense of nirvana or perfection every moment. And so rather than striving for that, REBT encourages us to remember we construct our thinking and that creates our emotions. Mm -hmm. So let's create the healthy mm -hmm. emotions. So, yeah. Yeah, so, so how do you scientifically reach that state then through REBT uh, to realize that you... Um, yeah, you do not need to react to your feelings that way. I mean, you, you can rationalize about it and you can talk about it, but how how do you make your clients reach that state? <laughs> Wonderful question. So the first step is to recognize that the emotion is unhealthy. If it's healthy, no need to change it, right? Even one of the unhealthy, one of the excuse me, one of the healthy negative emotions, someone we love dies, the grief is healthy. Mm. Let it be, let it be, you know. But grief is very different from depression, which as mentioned earlier, we just are hopeless, don't want to get out of bed in the morning. In the early stages of grief, it can be hard to distinguish, but as the months roll along, we can tell. So REBT, says first is your emotion healthy or unhealthy so if you recognize it's it's not healthy then the next step is what are you telling yourself to create the unhealthy emotion remember rebt reminds us it's not an event but what we tell ourselves about it and if we think in irrational ways we create unhealthy emotions so we identify and in the early months of learning REBT it's recommended you write them down you write down mm -hmm. as many irrational beliefs connected to what seems to have started the the unhealthy emotion as you can think of he shouldn't have done that it's not fair I can't stand it these these overgeneralizations shoulds must taking things too seriously damnation write them down and then the next step is to dispute them. As long as we believe them, we'll keep thinking them. 
and then we'll keep feeling that emotion. So we dispute by asking questions, where is the evidence it should be this way? Where is this evidence that I can't stand it? Is, is it helping me or hurting me? Is it logical what I'm telling myself? Does it follow just because I want something that it must be so, it should be so, and that I can't stand it if it, it isn't so? And so we dispute, we question each irrational belief. And as a result of that, we come up with healthy, effective new beliefs, not sugary, unrealistic, everything's for the best, la, la, la. No, realistic optimism. I can stand what I don't like. I just don't like it. I can have my desires, but if I don't achieve them, it's not the end of the world. I can rethink things and so on. And then what's very important is repetition, repetition, repetition of the effective new healthy beliefs. Science, you asked about science, Maria. Mm -hmm. This field of neuroplasticity proves that with repetition, it usually for at least one month, sometimes longer, but with repetition daily, new neural pathways are formed in the brain, new thinking habits, and over time, they replace the old ones. And particularly when you question and dispute the old irrational beliefs, they lose their credibility. You no longer believe it, mm -hmm. right? So repetition. And REBT reminds us that to create and maintain long-lasting change requires ongoing effort. It's not hard. Is it hard to brush our teeth every day? No, but we make the effort because we know it's good for us. Similarly, in our daily life, we choose to be mindful. Uh-oh, I'm feeling a bit of rage coming on. What am I telling myself? And, and I'm saying he shouldn't be that way, so let me let me address that. He's a fallible human like me. He's allowed to be wrong, in my opinion. I let go, I let go. It's hurting me to cling to what I, I tell myself that he should be when he has the right to be what he is, even if I don't like. So we get in the habit of noticing the unhealthy emotion, identifying the irrational the thoughts that trigger it, challenging them and replacing them. It might seem tedious if this is new, but really over time it's easy. It becomes automatic. But to become automatic requires practice, practice, yeah. practice until it, it is so. Yeah, sure. <laughs> the last question I wanted to ask you uh, about is, um, you know, it's widely used in, in both psychology and meditation and in Buddhism, and that is compassion. I think that's a it's a it's a um, topic that keep on coming back through different teachings. Um, so I'm just wondering why that is important from a psychology point of view, and and what is the impact scientifically on our health and our well being when we are compassionate, both yeah. towards ourselves and the others around us, of course. Yeah, research has shown that people who practice 
compassion and daily gratitude tend to live at least 15 years longer than people who don't. 15. One five, yeah. Um, you know, uh, there was a, an article in the JAMA, Journal of the American Medical Association. Um, one of my closest friends is a cardiologist and sometimes she shares articles. I don't think you get more scientific than the Journal of the American Medical Association and she'll show me an article and half of it I don't understand because there are long chemical terms and graphs mm. and statistics. But I usually understand the introduction and the summary. <laughs> and so she knows that a very big part of REBT is compassion and gratitude. And this article, I think just a few years ago, it came out before COVID, um, so it looked at people with cardiovascular issues, atherosclerosis, high blood pressure. So it looked at two groups, those so that the groups had similar medical situation, a compromised cardiovascular system. And it looked at those who practiced compassion, daily gratitude, and those who did not. And those who practice daily gratitude lived on average. That's where I was thinking mm -hmm. of what I told you a few months ago. On average, 10 to 15 years longer than those with the same medical biological issues but who didn't. Mm -hmm. And when we experience those emotions of compassion, it, it stimulates those healthy chemicals in the brain. It reduces stress. It doesn't stimulate adrenaline and the fight or flight and and the um, chemicals that lead to to clogging of the arteries atherosclerosis high blood pressure and so forth so when you ask you know scientifically the attitudes uh, and emotions associated with gratitude and compassion lead to a healthier body, a stronger immune system, we tend not only to live longer but a quality of life longer. Life is more pleasurable. You know, if I'm angry at someone, it, it's not feeling very good. If I if I have compassion, my, my heart feels tender. Um, it's a sweetness. It's a joy. It's more connected to the essence of me than those unhealthy negative emotions that I construct uh, if I do construct them. So um, the impact on our health and well-being is, is immeasurable in some ways and precious. And the more I practice compassion for other people, then when I screw up, it's easier for me to have compassion on myself. The more I practice forgiving myself when I've done something really off, then the easier it can be for me to have compassion on others if they do something similar or worse. So it's just beneficial, 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 and it helps us achieve 
our birthright that both RBT and Buddhism declare of enjoying life, despite and including the fact that life will contain some loss, pain and suffering. We can still choose to maximise and allow ourselves to feel enjoyment of life. Yeah, that's a good positive note to end. The, it's been a great interview. Thank you for joining. <laughs> it's been a great pleasure, Maria. Pleasure to meet you and, and thank you for having me on, on your podcast. That's it for today. Thank you all for listening. I really appreciate it. And if you want to read up more about the guest, then you can go to the show notes to get all of the links. And also, if you like this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to the newsletter to never miss the latest episode. Thank you for today. See you in the next episode.